Welcome to the second season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Toronto is Canada's largest city with a population of over 6 million. Its weather ranges from hot and humid in the summer to very cold winters blanketed in snow. If you're a sports fan, they've got you covered. It's home to major league sports teams, including hockey's Toronto Maple Leafs, baseball Toronto Blue Jays, football's Toronto Argonauts, and basketball's Toronto Raptors. And if you're not afraid of heights, check out the CNN Tower and its edge walk. It's not for the faint of heart, but if you dare, 116 stories above the ground, a five-foot-wide walkway runs around the exterior of the tower. There is no railing. Rather, you are strapped in and tethered to the building as you bravely walk. If being outdoors and blown around by the wind while tied to a rope isn't your thing, you can stay inside and check out the glass floor or dine in the revolving restaurant. Brett Ryan grew up in the suburbs of Toronto. His father worked for the local newspaper, and his mother was a homemaker. He had two older brothers. Chris worked for the Toronto Transit Commission, and Leyland was studying photography. His younger brother, AJ, exceeded in his academics and attended a school for gifted students. Brett was a good-looking kid, always smiling. He was a little league referee and volunteered at the hospital. After high school, Brett went to the University of Toronto, but he struggled and dropped out in 2003. He went back later, but dropped out again in 2005. By 2007, Brett was 26, $60,000 in debt, and living with his parents. Depression set in, but Brett didn't reach out for help. He didn't want to bother his family. While his friends were graduating university and starting out on successful careers, Brett was driving his beat-up truck to his job painting houses. In desperation, he devised a plan. He decided to rob a bank. He lived in a good place to carry that out. Ontario has the highest number of banks in Canada, and Toronto is home to all the major banks. The Toronto Police Statistics on Robberies at Financial Institutions in 2006 shows 182 robberies and only a 54% clearance rate. That meant Brett had a 46% chance of getting away with it. Brett was meticulous. He spent days researching the banks, selecting ones close to the highway. He drove to the bank to ensure there was a fast getaway route, and wandered inside for a few moments to scope the layout. 
On October 20th, Brett executed his first bank robbery. Toronto Life's in-death report by Mark Mann described how he drove a short eight minutes from his home, put on a hooded sweatshirt, wrapped white hospital bandages around his face, and put his left arm in a sling. He shuffled into the CIBC bank on Old Kingston Road and handed the teller a note demanding money and claimed he had a gun. The teller handed him $1,155. Brett was on his way to financial freedom, one bank robbery at a time. After his second robbery, he improved his disguise. He visited a store that sold high-end theatrical supplies and purchased a glue-on beard to change his appearance to an old man. He wore glasses, a Gilligan-style hat, a plaid shirt, and a dark jacket, and shuffled as he walked. He robbed five banks over the next three months. On average, he scored two to $4,000 each time. The Edmonton Sun described how he spent the money. He had expensive taste, buying $400 designer jeans, stylish Versace belts, and drove a new Ford F-150 pickup truck. Between bank heists, he lived a normal life. He socialized with friends, went out to dinner, hit the gym, and practiced martial arts. Brett enjoyed this taste of success. One day, he robbed two banks in Scarborough and hit it big, raking in almost $10,000. The media nicknamed him the Bearded Bandit. Brett had unknowingly left his fingerprints behind, and police had linked the robberies with the wording he used on the hold-up note that demanded a few thousand dollars in 60 seconds, warned that he had a gun, and told the teller to stay calm. Police knew they had a serial robber on their hands, but Brett didn't have a criminal record and his prints weren't on file. They noticed he was targeting banks along Highway 401, so they positioned 25 police officers around banks near the highway. But then Brett robbed a bank that wasn't under surveillance. Within eight months, he'd robbed 13 banks and stolen a total of $28,000. Police tried a new tactic. The Orangeville Banner reported that police noticed on the bank surveillance videos that the robber walked with a shuffle, but appeared to have a youthful face under the beard. They contacted companies that sold theatrical supplies in the area and learned that a high-quality beard like that could only be bought at one place. They visited the supplier and searched through six months of sales receipts and found two sales. But there was no credit card on file. Both were paid in cash. Then Brett struck again, this time at a bank in Montreal. When police reviewed the video surveillance, they noticed it appeared to have captured the robber's getaway vehicle. The video wasn't clear enough to decipher the license plate, but they could make out that it was a Ford truck. They sent a screenshot of it to the manufacturer, 
and while they were waiting to see if they could determine which dealership had sold the truck, an off-duty officer spotted a truck similar to the one used in the robbery. Police ran the plate and traced it to Brett. Police began surveillance on Brett. On June 9th, it had been eight months since he began robbing banks, and Brett was planning his next score. He drove by first, slowly checking out the bank, then parked and went inside for a few minutes. Outside in the parking lot, police parked and waited. Nine days later, Brett picked the TD Bank on Dominion Road. He arrived at the bank, donned his disguise, and headed in. But something had changed. There was construction outside, and it made him nervous. Brett looked around for a minute, changed his mind, and walked out into the handcuffs of police. A search warrant was issued for his vehicle and his parents' house. They found eyeglasses, a sling, bandages, a bag with hair and glue, and a hold-up note. Although he threatened that he had a gun, he never produced one, and officers didn't find one. Brett was facing 15 years in prison. He was held until his trial. Seven months later, when he went before the judge, he pled guilty and apologized for his actions. Many of his friends wrote letters of support and acknowledged his volunteer work. In sentencing him, the judge took into consideration their support, his remorse, and lack of criminal history, and sentenced him to three years and nine months. The judge told Brett, you're a lucky man, Mr. Ryan. You have a family behind you. I think that family will stick with you. Brett was released from prison in late 2010 and returned to live with his family. But his mother felt that neighbors were whispering about them. So they sold their house and moved to the suburb of Scarborough. Brett saw a psychologist who advised him to work on his relationship with his family and to be honest with them. He worked a few low-paying jobs and eventually went back to university. In September 2011, Brett went on a blind date. Christian was a beautiful young woman with long blonde hair, a quick smile, who loved her dog. The two hit it off. She was a physiotherapist and had a condo in a downtown high-rise with a view of the water. Brett was honest with her and told her about his past. A year and a half later, he moved in with Kristen, and the couple were engaged. Their wedding date was planned for September 16, 2016. A year later, Brett's father went into the hospital to have surgery and unexpectedly passed away. Brett's mom leaned on him to help around the house and paid him for his time. In 2015, Brett dropped out of university again, but didn't tell his fiancée or his family. In the spring of 2016, as the wedding neared, Brett pretended he'd graduated from university. 
Then in May he landed an IT job with a tech firm. Brett was so excited he celebrated with Kristen and his family. But after only working for a month, his boss found out about his criminal past and fired him. Brett didn't have the heart or the guts to tell Kristen and his family. Instead, he told them he was working from home. Every day, Kristen left their condo to go to work, and Brett pulled out his laptop. With the bills mounting for the wedding, and the couple hoping to move to a larger place, the financial stress was building for Brett. He asked his mom for more work renovating her home. Then he took the psychologist's advice and confided in his mother that he'd lost his job and asked her for financial help. She had helped him out before, so he wasn't expecting her answer. She would give him money, but only if he told his fiancée the truth, and that if he didn't tell Christian, she would. Brett's head was spinning. What if he told Christian? Would she leave him? He wasn't sure, but there was a good chance she'd call off the wedding. A sense of failure and dread overcame him. In his state of mind, he decided that eliminating his mother was the way to solve his problem. The conditions of his prison release meant he couldn't have a gun. So instead, he chose a crossbow. He learned from his mistakes. This time, he didn't purchase it new. He wouldn't be leaving a paper trail. With only three weeks to their wedding, Brett continued to work at his mother's home. The kitchen had been renovated and the old material had been stowed in the garage. He took the crossbow with him and hid it on a shelf behind some tools. Brett was smart about IT stuff and cleverly designed an alibi. Toronto Life reported that he used his laptop and an oscillating fan with a wooden spoon to access the internet. The fan was plugged into a timer and when it turned on, the spoon would click on the cursor to open YouTube so that he could pretend he was home watching videos. And to ensure his alibi, he created a second and a third digital footprint. He set up two more fans on the kitchen counter with timers. He taped styluses to the fans and next to them set up a tablet and a cell phone. He pre-typed messages so that when the timer turned on, the fan would turn and the styluses would tap the screens and send the messages. Rather brilliant when you think about it. August 25th was a hot and humid summer day. That morning, Brent and Kristen woke up early with distinctly different plans. At 7.30 a.m., Kristen headed off to work and Brett put his plan for murder into gear. For some unknown reason, he didn't turn on the fan or timers. Was it the stress of what he was about to do that made him forget? Or did he think he wouldn't need them? 
He put on two pairs of jeans and packed a bag with extra clothes, arrows, and bolts for the crossbow. Now, if you're wondering what a bolt is, so was I. Turns out it's a short arrow that can vary from 6 to 16 inches. Brett knew he had to avoid the security cameras in the condo building, so he walked down the stairs, all 14 flights. He took the train, got off, and walked the last 10 minutes to his mother's house. Sue wasn't expecting to see her son that day. He tried to persuade her not to tell Kristen, but she wouldn't change her mind. Their discussion escalated into an argument. She picked up her cell phone and called Brett's older brother Chris to come and help. Brett panicked. This wasn't how it was supposed to go. He was losing control. He walked out of the house and strode over to the garage. His mother followed him. He didn't have time to load the crossbow, so he grabbed a bolt and stabbed her. Then he wrestled her to the ground. She fought back. He scrambled for something he could use and found a yellow nylon rope. He wrapped it around her neck and squeezed. Brett knew that Chris would be there any minute. He picked up the crossbow and loaded it. Chris stepped into the garage and never saw it coming. The arrow pierced his neck and he died instantly. Brett placed his brother's body on top of his mother's and threw a tarp over them. His plan was to put on the disguise he'd brought and flee. But before he could do that, his younger brother A.J. arrived home. A.J. was on the walkway to the back door when Brett came out of the garage with a bolt in his hand. They fought briefly before he stabbed A.J. in the neck and watched as he fell to the pavement. The neighbors heard screaming. It had started so quickly. Brett's other brother, Leyland, had been sleeping in his bedroom and heard the screaming, too. He raced outside to see A.J. bleeding in the driveway. He ran back inside to call 911, but Brett followed him. They fought their way through the house, breaking furniture as they went. Blood dripped onto the floors and splattered on the walls. Leyland managed to break free of Brett's grasp and race toward the street. A.J. had managed to crawl down the driveway and was near the road. Leyland ran across the street to a neighbor's house. Brett followed. Toronto City News reported that Leyland hammered on the door. His neighbor Carl opened it, and Leyland fell into his arms. He staggered into the front room and fell on the floor. He told Carl to call 911. My brother's bleeding in the driveway. Make sure the police come. Then he passed out. Brett returned to his mother's house and went inside. Carl went over to check on AJ, but there was nothing he could do.
Brett came out and sat on the front porch and waited for police. When they arrived, he told them there were two more bodies in the garage and that he had done it. Brett was facing 75 years in prison. He hired the notorious criminal lawyer John Rosen, who'd represented serial killer Paul Bernardo. Brett pled guilty to the murders, but claimed he hadn't intended to kill his mother with a crossbow, that he was only going to use it to threaten her. The judge sentenced Brett to life in prison, with no chance of parole for 25 years, for first-degree murder for his brother Chris, and two concurrent life sentences for second-degree murder for his mother and brother A.J. Brett will be eligible for parole in 2041, when he will be 60 years old. This time, he does not have family behind him. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Michael Hetley. For years, Janelle and Siobhan cranked their music through parties and annoyed their neighbors. They had no idea that next door, Mike was an ex-police officer who wasn't afraid to pull the trigger. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers. <laughs>